Welcome into the Yachts and Audible's podcast post-game edition. I'm Matt Prame, Eric Scopel on the show as always. Boy, Eric, uh, 38-29 victory over the Oregon State Beavers. I want to call it a – let's talk about this right here. I want to call it a blowout. I think it was. I think they were in control the entire game. And while Oregon State did get within uh, – 10 points or so in this one, Oregon answered every time. And I I think the only time when there was some concern was when they got it to 10, when they scored a touchdown, onside kicked it, horrible special teams by Oregon, um, and then scored again. But both times OSU failed on their two-point conversions, couldn't get it under a a two-score lead, and Oregon was in control from the get-go. I want to call this a blowout. It's definitely a comfortable win. Like I, the, the final score does not represent the margin in this one. Um, Oregon State scores a touchdown late. Those listening, probably we don't need to run through all the, you know, the logistics, the specifics of what happened in the last quarter. But Oregon did hold a twenty-one point halftime advantage, and it was never a game in the second half where I was really sweating it. I think the one moment where maybe you kind of started to get a little uneasy was. After that onside kick, which, again, is just laughable that that's able to happen. Special teams for Oregon the last two weeks has been really bad. Um, something we'll follow up with Mario Cristobal you know, sometime early in the week just to kind of get his opinion. Because I, I can't believe they weren't even – it didn't seem like they were prepared for the possibility. And it ended up being a very, very easy kick for the Beavers to get that you know ball back on their side. And they score really quickly. And they scored two touchdowns in about – a minute and 40 seconds. And I'd give the defense a lot of credit because both of those touchdowns, Oregon state goes for two because I don't, I don't know what Jonathan Smith was thinking. We, we, we kind of, when they, when he did it the first time, we kind of nudged each other like, why? And Oregon stops that one. And they ended up being at a deficit the whole game. And part of me thinks it screwed him up. I don't think, I don't think ultimately it matters. Oregon still wins yeah, regardless, but it created a 10 point cushion on what would have been, potentially a seven point cushion midway through the fourth quarter after that second touchdown Oregon state scores, because they aren't able to get it again. They go over three. This was almost like Oregon, or, Nebraska, exactly. <laughs> Oregon, Nebraska to open the 17, 16 season. And where it's just like, you're needlessly creating more difficulty for yourself by going for two over and over again. And I think Oregon state got a little too cute. It, it, ultimately, I don't think it matters. I don't think it takes away from what was a really impressive overall performance by – let's start with Oregon's offense, Matt, because awesome. I, th- I thought they were really, really fantastic. You know, They scored all four of their first half drives, either it landed in touchdowns or field goals. Um, the second half, they have to punt on their first drive, but I think they go and score on the other two before the yeah. end of the game where they're just kind of – running clock and wasting it so their first seven drives ended in touchdowns yeah like one in one field goal that took seven minutes off the clock and that was that was a big drive too just to kill some clock but like i I think it was just like oregon's offense similar to colorado a couple of weeks ago every time they had the ball every time they were in position you know to to, to, you know do some damage they did and i i think anthony brown deserves a ton of credit been very critical of him i think it's only fair that we are very complimentary when he plays well. This was his, I think, his best game in green and yellow. 23 for 28 passing, 275, two touchdowns, 
both of which were were not easy throws, both of which were tough throws. You think about the way he rolled out and hit Devin Williams 50 yards downfield. Might have been, Matt, his best throw in green and yellow. I mean, I think Probably. you can make an argument. Probably that or his Devin Williams one at UW in my eyes. Yeah, but both in there. I, I think I think this one probably gets the top. I mean, it, it was a play where at first, because I was focused on Anthony Brown and what was immediately ahead of him because he, he got the ball, he rolled to the right on a scramble. Was, I think it was an RPO, and it was – open grass. The first down was in front of him. And I was like, why are you, when he pulled up the throw, my eyes had not glanced downfield and it was, Oh my God, he has an automatic first down. <laughs> yeah. And he's passing this up to throw it. Where is, Oh, touchdown. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it was perfect read, perfect throw. Devin Williams didn't have to even stop in, in his stride. Um, to catch that it, it was you're right by far his best throw uh, of his career at, at Oregon and I, I think seven different receivers caught a pass from them from Anthony Brown we had two guys on this team uh, go over 82 yards I think you said uh, a freshman receiver would go for 85 yards and you almost hit it as the secondary guy I mean, and that's – Devin Williams, Chris Hudson answered the bell today. 13 catches, mm -hmm. 192 yards, 16 total targets, and it was two touchdowns combined for them. And and they look like the big play receivers that we have been expecting and hoping to see all year. Pass attack was really impressive yeah. today. There were very, very few questionable decisions with where the ball went. For the most part, the ball was delivered accurately. I thought Anthony Brown was just pretty fantastic. And for the way his season has gone, and again, I'm not going to try to retroactively say he was great all season because those listening know that's not been the case. He hasn't been. He's been very up and down. And that's been the frustrating part of this team because you think about the two games they lost are his two worst games, Stanford and Utah. And this team kind of goes a little bit with its quarterback, and that's how it works. Quarterback's the most important position in football for a reason. When Anthony Brown is playing at the level he did today, like he did against Colorado, like he did against UCLA, save for a couple really bad fourth quarter interceptions, you see what the ceiling of this offense is. And I thought this was a game where they kind of needed it. I mean, I, I don't, again, I think they won, I would say, soundly. They won convincingly. They led for basically the, they, they led for the duration. You know, they, they never trailed. This was never a game where I was really sweating it. But they, it felt like all these offensive drives were necessary because the defense was fantastic in the first half, sputtered a little in the second, a bunch of injuries, and that was difficult. And then the special teams with that onside kick puts the defense, you know, it's back against the wall again, basically, right after giving up a touchdown. I just thought it was really telling that drive after that second Oregon State touchdown to come down the field. He hits Chris Hudson for 18 yards on a third and eight, where, shoot, if that is not a complete pass, Oregon State has a little bit of life oh, there. Oh, absolutely. And he hits that pass. The ball gets down the field. Byron Cardwell, big run. They put the ball in the end zone. Travis Dye, I think, fittingly finishes it. Um, you know, it's quite, I don't, it's not a send off because he's not officially done, you know, but could be a send off for him in this rivalry. He played a fantastic game as well. But I, I just thought this offense was 
answer the call every single time and coming off a game where they were really, really bad and scored seven points and just couldn't get out of their own way. I just think really impressive the way they started, how effective they were in the first quarter, in the first half to build the 24 to three lead. And then the way they finished it, which has become the staple of this Oregon offense when it is clicking is that they can go and finish games for you. We've seen it several times at the end of the season. And I thought this was again, one of the more impressive overall offensive performances of the season and probably the most impressive you consider all that was on the line, the opponent you're playing, all of that. I wanted to just touch on that just for a second here. This is a game against an opponent who has some marquee wins, uh, a, a very convincing win against a Utah team who won the Pac-12 South Championship, a straight-up dominating ass-kicking win against Arizona State who finished second in the Pac-12 South standings, a game where they went down to the Coliseum and absolutely just lit up the USC Trojans. And Oregon State's a bowl team. This is a good football team. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that they're Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, or what have you, but they are a legit team. And Oregon comes off the week before this, their worst football game in the Mario Cristobal era and maybe the worst game from Oregon since the Washington 2016 debacle Yeah, and played probably their best offensive game of the year. They had 506 yards of offense. They had, they were 10 of 13 on third down conversions. They were one of one on fourth down. Uh, they had 26 first downs in this game. They averaged 7.3 yards per play. Wow. Um, they had one turnover. They had one, excuse me, they had one fumble, but they did not lose the ball. Um, they scored every time they were in the red zone. They scored on their first four drives of this football game. And then to flip it over, they were playing one of the league's best offenses. And they held Oregon State, who's a top, I believe, top 10 rushing team in the country, to 85 yards on the ground and 393 yards of total offense. They were just they were five of ten on third downs, which is pretty good, but that's they they could not compete with what Oregon was doing. Um this was a, a very good game coming off of one of the worst games in recent memory, not just the Crystal Ball era, but just ten last ten years of Oregon football. And it gives you a lot of confidence, and it probably gives the players a lot of confidence going into Friday night's Pac-12 championship game against Utah. Yeah, this team needed an answer, didn't it? We yeah. needed to see this. We needed to know what would happen. I had quite a bit of confidence that they would win. I didn't think they would play like that. I even wrote in my prediction, I would be surprised if the team leads by two scores for much of the game. And Oregon led by two scores for basically the entire game. Oh, like 50 minutes or something like that was by two scores. So the game script didn't play out the way I thought it would. And honestly, they exceeded expectations, you know, with everything that was on the line for both these teams, obviously Oregon state didn't have a chance to play for, you know, didn't have a chance to go to the conference championship game. If Washington had beaten Washington state on Friday, the situation would be different. So that might've been slightly deflating for Oregon state, but they still had so much motivation here to knock Oregon out of the conference championship game oh. to beat Oregon for a second year, everything that goes into this rivalry, everything that, that goes into just these two schools, trying to compete for division championships and, and and really, I think, battling. And for Oregon to step up and, and take 
I don't know if it was Oregon State's best shot. Probably wasn't, but to take a, a good shot from the Beavers, and the Beavers kept coming. Credit to them. You know, Oregon had this game. It seemed like on ice a couple times, and, and Oregon State had answers to at least. Again, it was never sweating. You know, you weren't sweating too much in this one. I think you felt pretty comfortable after half. But good on Oregon State for fighting and cutting it down to nine points at the end here. Um, you know, they they didn't quit and thought that was impressive. But for Oregon, you needed to see this. It would have been such a letdown if they would have either lost a really in brutal fashion again, or even if they would have won, but looked ugly doing it. Like I think we would have had a vastly different opinion coming out of this one. This is exactly what you wanted to see from this team. You need to see it from the offense. You got it from the quarterback position. You need to see it from the defense. We haven't talked a lot about the defense, but you did run through some of the, the way they stopped Oregon state's run game. I thought that was really notable. The first few drives in the first half, you could tell Oregon state just didn't necessarily have an option or an answer. Once Oregon was so disruptive on those run plays and, Chance Nolan had some great throws, a lot of them in the second half. But first half, I thought it was very clear Oregon's defense wasn't going to let Oregon State really get going, and they didn't. You know, they kick a field goal there um, on a drive that could have resulted in more points. And, again, I thought it was notable that, and I think we talked about this, just who would win in the red zone, and Oregon won those. Oregon was much more effective in the red zone today. And all in all, I think you come out of this going, okay, it's impossible to erase what we just saw in Salt Lake City. I saw it in person. About seven days ago, you can't forget that game took place. But I go into this game feeling a little bit better. I don't know what I'm going to do ultimately in terms of picking winners, if I'm going to pick Oregon to win the third straight conference championship or not. But I certainly feel like Oregon has a, a, a very much a fighting chance here. And if they play the way they played tonight, it's going to be a real dogfight down in Vegas between, I think quite clearly, by the way, the two best teams in the conference. I don't think there's any question. These are the Oregon and Utah, the two best teams in the conference. It's fitting they'll finish this season duking it out and it's fitting for Oregon that, you know, they'll have basically two weeks removed from its worst game to get some vengeance, to pay back what was a really embarrassing game to prove that wasn't really who this team is. And if they go out and win that game at three straight conference championships and another chance to win a Rose bowl, I mean, that's still a fantastic result for a season. That's been, I think, I think to me still a very special year and they have a chance to finish it and make it even more special. Think about the way people revere that 2019 team for winning a Rose Bowl. Feel the same. I think it'll feel very similar if this team is able to finish it off, beat Utah, and then go win a Rose Bowl over. Shoot, it could be Ohio State maybe, the way things are playing out. We don't know. But um, certainly you love this result and the way it kind of sets up this team going forward. Just a few notes about this win. Um, it's the third straight, like Eric said, the back to championship game for the Ducks. It's 12th 10-win season in program history, mm. uh, second under Mario Cristobal. The Ducks finished a perfect 7-0 at home this season, uh, marking the third consecutive undefeated season and seventh since 2000. Um, very impressive there. Last home loss, the Mario Cristobal era, is that Stanford game in 2018. Oof. Um, it's the third longest home winning streak at 19. Uh, they've won 15 consecutive games in Pac-12 play. Uh, they've beaten Oregon State for the 12th time now in the last 14 meetings, 17 straight in Autzen Stadium. Um, the first sellout crowd at Autzen, 56,408 um, in this game. And they the, some, some other offensive and defensive stats. So just real quick, I want to run through these. Um, 506 yards of total offense, third time this season they've hit the 500 mark. Um, they are 18 and one when they go for at least 200 yards on the ground under Mario Cristobal. 
Um, the, the seventh 200-yard performance of the year, the most by an Oregon team since 2017, which had 10. Um, they're averaging 10.3 points per game in the fourth quarter, scoring double figures in the final quarter for the sixth time, all in home games. They lost just three yards uh, on, on plays this season, uh, for negative, in this game, excuse me. Defensively, they did not allow a touchdown in the first half for the first time first time since that 2019 Pac-12 championship game against Utah. Three points is the fewest that Oregon's allowed in the first half since holding Utah scoreless. Um, held Oregon State scoreless in the second quarter while only allowing 46 yards on the ground in that quarter. And then they did not allow a rush of 20 yards or more for the seventh game in a row with a total of just four all season long. Um, and those two had the, the fewest rushing yards of the year for them since the season opener. So just overall, I think a really good performance and we should probably talk about the injuries. There's probably a bunch of guys that people, probably a lot of people that want to know about that. Um, and I think if we take Mario Cristobal for his word, for what he has said um, regarding injuries, Oregon dodged a serious bullet with multiple starters um, not finishing this football game. Yeah, it was just – it was a game where Oregon was kind of running on fumes, especially defensively. Mark Cristobal said after the game, and again, these initial injury reports certainly aren't definitive. You can't rule out the possibility that we hear from our later in the week and he says something different. But yeah, I mean, we saw that with Justin Flo. I mean, it's possible, um, but it's not particularly common. It happens, but maybe not all the time. But Mikhail Wright, Noah Sewell, and Popo Amabai all left this game, and I don't believe any of them returned. Um, Cristobal suggested none of these were serious injuries. He feels good about the initial report. Um, and you're hopeful that all of these guys can play. Um, you know, and I think another thing, two other, I mean, the three the three players I just said are, are, are extremely important to this team. And then you're talking about Verone McKinley and Kayvon Thibodeau, two other guys extremely important to this defense. I mean, those are five of your seven or eight best defensive players. And Thibodeau had a, kind of an injury he was dealing with and working through. You could tell it was really causing him to labor, especially in that fourth quarter. And then Verone McKinley became very close to being ejected for targeting and then what would be suspended for the Utah game um, with a targeting call that was then picked up in the closing moments of this game. I think Oregon really dodged a bullet there to be with, I mean, we'll see what happens. It sounds like, again, things sound positive regarding what's taken place with Mikhail Wright, what's taken place with Noah Sewell and Popo Amavai. Hopefully those injury reports hold true and they're available. So Oregon can be at its best against Utah because they need that. If they're down any of those guys, that's really significant. I mean, the drop off from Noah Sewell to whoever replaces him, Nadu Kaliani or Jackson LaDuke, that's huge. The drop off from Mikhail Wright, to Dante Manning, we saw at times today, was pretty big. Dante Manning got beat quite a few times, and in the second half it was clear that Nolan was kind of targeting wherever Dante was in the field and throwing at him, and he had a lot of success. And then Popo Amavai, I think, has quietly been such a valuable part. And if he's unavailable, you're down Keon Ware-Hudson already. You're looking at Jason Jones, Christian Williams, two guys who have played quite a bit to fill in, and that's a pretty big drop too down to those guys from Popo. So – We'll see what happens. Initial word is very positive, and you're just hopeful that all of this holds true and that Oregon gets to Friday in Las Vegas at Allegiant Stadium with as close to all their guys available. Because I think if they're shooting, you know, if they're at a, uh, uh, close to full strength, as close as they can be right now, 
it gives them a real shot. It gives them a real shot. I won't say they're going to win. I wouldn't take some time to kind of reflect more on both of these teams and how they performed over the weekend. We should note Utah does have the edge of having an extra day's rest. Yep. Marcus well made that a point. And I don't think that was by accident. Yep. He's pretty astute in his observations, but they played on Friday. They beat Colorado in their rivalry game Friday evening. Um, or actually early afternoon, and and now Oregon played one day later. So the, the Utes do have one more time to get rested. Oregon will be playing on a shorter rest than normal with a game on Friday. You hope from an injury perspective everything checks out and what we've heard tonight ends up being what they're at on, on Saturday, or I guess on Friday. Um, we've also – it's going to be interesting seeing, I think, the reaction and the turnaround of this team because I don't know about you, but – when we were speaking with players, when we were speaking with Mario Cristobal post-game, it definitely felt different. Like, they they have already closed the book on Oregon State and are chomping at the bit to face Utah. Like, there, there is – I think you can feel the fire in these guys – of how pissed they are about the opportunity that they squandered you know, a week and a half ago in Salt Lake City, and they want a second shot. Um, it, it's been a long time since this Oregon team's been been humbled like that, and then it's been an even longer time to see them play that team that humbled them again. And I, I think that, to me, is probably what's the most exciting, interesting aspect of this is this loss is still fresh. The wound yeah. is, is still healing. And how is this team – what's this team mentally? I mean, they're, they're pissed. And I think it kind of showed in the Oregon State game, and it's going to be interesting to see how that bleeds over into the Pac-12 championship game in Vegas. And Oregon, you know, I think an angry Oregon team is not a team most no. people would face. And Utah had the advantage – and I don't want to take anything away from that win because Utah was so impressive in it. Utah had the advantage of playing home field. They had the advantage of playing Oregon, which had a lot to play for. Utah played an awesome game. Yep. You know, quarter to quarter, end to start, you know, start to end. I, you can't, I don't want to take anything away from it. Oregon did not play a good game. Oregon has a lot of motivation. They have a lot to play for. It was something that was said and you could feel, even though I wouldn't say any bulletin board material was really given by Oregon's players tonight, you could see it in the way they answered and, and, and kind of received the questions. They're really, they're really motivated to prove something here. Um, I thought even Triquest Bridges on Wednesday when he spoke with media, the way he kind of addressed it. Again, no bulletin board material, but just saying we want Utah. Like we want to show that what we just played wasn't who we are. Yeah. We want to redefine what this team is, and they get an opportunity. I think that's what's so fitting about how this plays out. They get an opportunity to go out and sh- and say that was a one-off. That was an aberration game. We didn't play well. Utah played really well. They beat us fair and square. No question about it. But on a neutral site with everything on the line, we're still the top dogs in this conference. They have a chance to go out and say that. They, yeah. also, they also have a chance, if they don't play well and they lose again, to prove pretty definitively Utah was the best team in the Pac-12. That's very much on the table. So this, again, we say this all the time, but it's true this time of year, especially when you get into conference championship games. A lot on the line. We're going to learn a lot about this group and how they play. And we can probably get into this here as a wrap up, Matt. How they play in Las Vegas will determine whether it's a chance to win a Rose Bowl, which, again, is a coveted thing here. People, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. And even with a loss, I think it's pretty likely they still play in a New Year's Six Bowl, whether that be the Fiesta Bowl 
or I think the Citrus Bowl is the other one, Matt, right? Yes. A pretty good chance they play in one of those. You know, they, they're going to play in, I think, a New Year's Six Bowl pretty likely because the teams around them are losing, are going to fall behind, or going to move up a little bit. They have some space now to take a loss, assuming it's probably not another really, really embarrassing loss to Utah to play in a really big bowl game again. And I think that's justified for this team. Um, anything else? We haven't really talked too much about, I guess, the defense in general. Um, was there anything else that stood out from that performance other than the fact that they're so banged up right now? Because um, I thought overall it was pretty good, aside from a couple stretches in the fourth quarter where the special teams did them zero favors and they were already down a couple of key guys. Yeah, I'm really disappointed in the special teams, um, more yeah. so coaching. Um, the fact that Oregon didn't have kind of that quasi-hands team where you maybe have two guys back to field the kickoff and then the rest of the unit is up preparing for the – onside kick. I mean, that's, that's coaching that, that, that that's on Oregon's coaching staff and not being prepared for that time and you know situation. It happened. It happened last year too, which is what's so frustrating twice back-to-back games against USC and Iowa state. It's the same kind of thing. Sorry, Matt. I just, yeah. I get it. it's frustrating. And, 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 and so, and it's so frustrating because special teams for a good chunk of the year, has been improved. I'm not going to sit here and say that they're elite, but it's been improved. And it feels like the last couple of weeks, there's been some plays and some things that have happened that keep happening that are a concern. You know, I, I the block against uh, Utah um, on that field goal attempt, I, I think probably played a factor in, in Camden Lewis the next game or the next kick right. coming out and shanking it. You know, he's having to worry about a blocking kick. And you know, the, missing those two opportunities of scores there, the punt against Utah, this kickoff, uh, this, this return that, that got the onside kick. There was a poor kickoff by Oregon uh, on one of their first, you know, touchdowns of the drive. Um, and, and so I, I think special teams, if, if you're going to beat Utah, you can't make these mistakes. You can't. And that needs to get fixed, and it needs to get fixed quickly. And it's, I think it's pretty frustrating that they continue to happen, and it has to be evaluated at the end of the year. Yep. So after the Utah game, we talked about things to improve upon. Special teams, you just mentioned it. I don't think you saw enough improvement. They had the kickoff out of bounds, like you said. They had another kick that I think Oregon State took close to, like, the 40-yard line. Just wasn't yeah. great on kickoffs in general, kickoffs or kickoff returns. Um, defensively? Oregon State 5 for 10 on third downs after Oregon was really victimized last week by Utah going 11 for 14. Some improvement there. Still a couple instances that was pretty frustrating where Oregon did a better job on first and down and second down, no question. But there were a couple times where the Beavers were really behind the sticks and it was third and eight to third and 12, and they had answers. Those were frustrating. Need to improve there. And then the other one that I really focused on was offensively was their inability against Utah to convert drives to touchdowns in the red zone. A-plus almost in that regard today. Aside from a drive in the first half that results in a field goal, every single drive resulted in, put, in touchdowns. Every single drive resulted in points that reached it, which is still really impressive. But really like to see the offense take a step. Thought the defense took a little bit of a step. Special teams, I'm with you, Matt. That's That's just frustrating, you know? And I think – Obviously, they didn't lose the game. You never really felt like they were going to. But a play like that totally flipped the momentum where even after Oregon State scores that touchdown, Oregon got a stop on a two-point conversion. You kind of felt like, okay, 
you get the ball back. Oregon State hasn't stopped Oregon all game. They'll come down and they'll add to it, or at least they'll kill clock. And, and this one's kind of over it, but it was the exact opposite. And uh, kudos to Oregon State for going with it and kind of identifying the issues. Oregon needs to be better on special teams. Bobby Williams, the special teams coordinator, really needs to kind of take a look at the mirror and, and kind of figure out some of this stuff. Because it's just, it's year after year now of some really, I think, seemingly, and maybe we'll be told we're wrong on this, but seemingly from my perspective, some very correctable, easy fixes that just aren't taking place. And it's costing this team. And you're right. It didn't cost them this week. Oregon still wins by nine points. But against Utah, you can't have that. You can't do that. You can't have those mistakes. We just saw against Utah three really bad special teams plays really cost Oregon. If they go out there and, and there are similar issues on whether it be coverage or, or returns, kickoffs or puns, whatever part of the the game it is, it's going to cost you. And Utah's a team that can take advantage of it. We should know um, that there is kind of some, some sad news because um, it's probably – you're going to probably see it across social media like crazy. Um, Mario Cristobal did end his press conference by saying – he is going to Miami immediately after this game was over um, to go see his mother and, and who she, he says is um, seriously ill. And it has happened very, very quickly. And he will be back into Eugene um, Sunday afternoon to continue getting ready for this football game. He feels like he needs to get down there. It's that serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he asked for prayers, but, um, that is going to be something you're going to see um, across social media. So, you know, there's this is crazy season from from a coaching standpoint, and I, I think he probably had the awareness. And I think this is where he's very good as a coach. He he sees things that could become bigger than what they are, and he quickly nipped it in the bud um, by giving us the reason why he's going to be in Miami um, for a very short, quick time. So we hope his mother and his family um, can get out of this healthy. Yeah. Hope for a full recovery. And it's tough, especially with, I mean, I'm sure if he wasn't a football coach and they weren't preparing for a huge football game, he'd be able to stay down there a couple more days and really make sure they maximize that time. You know, life is, you know, I've had some tough things that have happened recently too with people passing, you know, not to say that Mario's mom is going to pass, but you just understand how kind of life is and it can be difficult. And obviously he is taking, I think needed time to make sure that is dealt with and that he's able to see her and, and, and hopefully maybe that lights something for her that, that encourages her and, and, and things get better and she ends up all right. And hopefully obviously she ends up all right regardless, but I think it's really important to kind of, I thought I w- I'm with you just in terms of the optics part, Matt, because it would be very easy for, and we saw this on social media already, what the initial reaction yeah. is, which is always oh, going to Miami. Don't don't start that rumor. This is a health thing. This is his mom. Think about if your mom was sick and you had to fly all the way across the country to, to see her when she's dealing with, it sounds like a serious illness. But let's leave it, let it, let it be human. If it yeah. ends up being something else, then we can talk about that when we find out it's something else. I don't think it would be, I don't think you are opportunistic about doing a coaching search by using your mom as your mom's health as a, I mean, that would be kind of disappointing for Mario if that's what it is. That's why I don't even entertain the thought that that's what it is. Like he's going to see his mom who's dealing with, sounds like a serious illness. So you wish her well, you wish his travels well, and you, you just kind of hope for the best there and, and hope your head coach is, is all right. And he can be focused all the way in on, on football because you know, that's, 
the most important thing for him in his life really is football. It's a very, very key part. The other part is, is family. And that is something that comes across when you speak with him. And I would just say, don't, don't overthink this. Don't be too conspirator- conspiratorial, I guess, with, with how you receive this information. We're already seeing it happen. That's just the way, the nature of the times. But uh, good point, Matt, and you're bringing that up because I think important for us to address a little bit because it will be blasted around social yeah. media and it will be twisted into something it's not. And I don't, I don't, I, I, like you, I'm sure, I don't really want to spend my time. It's a stupid topic like you just played out of the conspiracy theory that people are thinking of what it's going to be actually about when it's literally just a man going to see his mom when she's very sick and he has the means to do it and he should do it. Um, real quick, real quick. We're going to Vegas. Vegas, Ooh. baby. Vegas, baby. Um, your excitement of this is the first time it's going to be in Vegas. I'm I'm curious of, of what this environment is going to be like. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think we talked about this coming at us. Autzen, probably going to be a pro Utah crowd. Um, I, I'm excited to get there, see what this is like. I think this is probably the first game in what should be many games of awesome environments in Allegiant Stadium. But I have one gripe, and and it's less than three hours old of Oregon getting to the the Pac-12 championship game. The league, while we were recording this podcast, has sent out a release, Pac-12 championship game set. Um, Tickets as well as discount flights and hotel options are available through the Pac-12 uh, at pac12.com slash tickets. You go to this link because, Eric, I was looking out for you, trying to get you a cheap flight. Thank you. To Las Vegas. And I clicked the book now option on this availability. And from Eugene to Las Vegas, there is a flight. Believe it or not, there is a flight to Eugene to Las Vegas. Problem is, Eric, if we want to get there, we got to leave on Monday. Or we got to leave on Friday, and we don't get to the game on Friday until after it's kicked off. Yeah, that doesn't seem particularly helpful. I'll stick with my flight through Portland, I guess. Um. <laughs> I mean, I, I, the jokes write themselves with this conference. Like, how can you not sit here and go to Allegiant and say, we want you to create two special flights out of each hotel that's closest to each desert, you know, each school to Vegas? And we'll release the ones from the two teams that make the championship game Saturday night or whenever it's we know that it's happening. And you can then book them and they'll be booked up. And here you go. Just like what they did for Kayvon Thibodeau and, and, and United Airlines. Maybe Kayvon Thibodeau needs to sit here a broker for the Pac-12 <laughs> conference because he got a direct flight through United to, to Columbus. Well, it's also not lost on me the irony of the stadium is a the stadium is a it's an airline, right? Like, I mean, they can't they can't figure this out. Like, you can't, <laughs> like they they they're not able to the the sponsor of the like the stadium isn't able to go. Hey, guys, let's like you said, let's get a flight from Salt Lake and a flight from Eugene that's direct and add it to the the week. I don't know. That's funky. Um, to your original question, I'm I actually haven't been to Las Vegas. I was thinking about this since I was a student at Gonzaga in 2011 for the WCC. 
men's basketball tournament. So it's been about 10 years. Matt, you go like four times a year. I was just there less than a week ago. Matt, Matt, Matt has like a second <laughs> residency down there. We don't even need to get a hotel. He's just going to use his, <laughs> his Matt Prem covering basketball games in Vegas apartment. Um, that's a joke. We will be using a hotel. Uh, just in case our superiors are listening, going like, why did you book a hotel if Matt? No, he doesn't. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm excited to be in Vegas, though. That'll be fun. And I think it is a... I think Vegas is such a perfect venue for this yeah. conference to do all of its championship games. It should just be in Vegas. It's fairly central. It's a fun I, – I, I haven't been there in a while, but my understanding, Matt, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's a fun place to be regardless yeah. of the sports. And uh, I'm excited to get down there. I haven't been in Allegiant Stadium. I uh, am excited to see what that looks like. I've heard, obviously, really, really positive things about it. It's one of the more recently built stadiums um, for football. Um, and I'm hoping it's just a great atmosphere. I would imagine, like you said, probably slightly pro Utah. I think Oregon fans have a lot of reasons to look into booking flights, even though the flights may be aren't particularly helpful um, down there. But I would imagine and hope that Oregon sends a large contingent of fans down for this game to support this team because they're one win away from the Rose Bowl. And that's, again, that 11 wins and a Rose Bowl berth, it's a really special season. And I think that's kind of where we should end it. This is a special year. I know it's disappointing because they're not in the college football playoff. Nobody, I mean, a lot of people were hoping that would be the case. It looked like it was very plausible not that long ago. But if the result is a Pac-12 championship for three straight years, another chance to win a Rose Bowl, it's pretty darn good. It's going to be pretty darn good. Um, I, like you said, this is going to be the premier place, I think, for – the Pac-12 championship game. It's going to be its new home. And look, we saw this play out with men's fo- men's basketball, and it's now playing out with women's basketball, how they're developing a, foot- a footing in that area. Uh, it's turning into a destination-type thing. Um, it certainly has become that way for the men. It's going that way for the women. And I think uh, it, it's going to be that way from, from a football standpoint. In a couple of years, we're going to see big crowds. We're going to see – Lots and lots uh, of exciting moments. And I think, Eric, um, I think I can speak for both of us here. We expect Oregon to be involved in a lot of those because of where mm-hmm. they're going. No doubt about it. This should not be the last trip Oregon fans make in December to Allegiant Stadium. I expect this will be the case quite frequently going forward. All right. That's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast for Eric Scopel. Uh, I am Matt Frame. Thank you for listening to a post-game edition of the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you, folks.